The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week, we are back with our good friend, Parker Pine, Catherine's favorite detective within <laughs> the Christieverse. Yes, yes, our good friend, Parker Pine. <laughs> our frenemy detective, Parker Pine. And boy, do we have a case for Catherine. This week, I have to say, when I read this, I was very curious to see what Catherine uh, would make of this story, especially its rather gonzo ending. Catherine, what are we discussing this week? Uh, we are discussing Have You Got Everything You Want? Which that name might sound familiar to a lot of listeners, as in, have we possibly covered this before? And the answer is no, we haven't. But it sounds familiar for a pretty good reason. And what is that reason, Kemper? Well, the entire series of initial Parker Pine stories was actually published in the U.S. in Cosmopolitan in 1933 under the overall series title, Have You Got Everything You Want? If Not, Consult Mr. Parker Pine. This is kind of culled from that initial series title, which and I think we've commented on this before, how it's a slightly different phrase from what's in the U.K. versions, which is, are you happy? Happy, if not, consult Mr. Parker Pine. Of course, the U.S. version is, have you got everything you want? I know. <laughs> Those grasping Americans. Ugh. So this story, when it was published in the UK in June of 1933, was, of course, published under a different title. And that was in Nash's Paul Mall magazine under the title On the Orient Express. My name is Hercule Poirot, and I'm probably the greatest detective in the world. Ooh la la. Yeah, which is, and we really do have here a, another Christie tale that takes place on the, on Orient, the Orient Express. Not quite a murder on the Orient Express, unless we're talking about Catherine's soul, perhaps, but, um, <laughs> you know. On the Orient Express, nonetheless. So this story in the UK was also published as part of a collection called The Arabian Nights of Parker Pine. Yeah, is, I think it was it was the it was the equivalent in Palm Mall of Have You Got Everything You Want. I think it includes Death on the Nile and what you would expect by something called the Arabian Nights of Parker Pine. The latter stories, which are the Parker Pine traveling stories, right. which I suppose would make sense. Yeah. So he's traveling to foreign, perhaps exotic lands, which is why they're collectively titled the Arabian Nights of Parker Pine. And uh, we will be following him on the on the course of these travels through the latter half of the Parker 
Parker Pine collection, which was, of course, published in its totality as Parker Pine Investigates in November of 1934 in the UK. I think it is time to talk about our victim. Our victim is one Mrs. Elsa Jeffries. She's pretty rich. Um, She's a young American woman, although not presented negatively, really, in this. Shocker. Which is a little bit of a surprise. Um, And she's en route from Paris to Istanbul to meet her relatively new husband, who is there on business. And her jewels are stolen on board the Orient Express. Oh, boy. All right. Well, in terms of suspects, we have a Slavic woman who is found in Elsie's sleeping carriage and who screams out that the train is on fire. (laughs) We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, Let's talk about the world as it appears to be. So as just noted, Elsie Jeffries is a newlywed and she's been apart from her husband for two weeks. So she's going to visit him in Istanbul and he's a bit of an upright Dudley do-right and can be a wee bit boring, but she loves him anyway. However, she's been a bit perturbed these last few days. Yeah, I already got nervous when I heard that the husband was more of a upstanding do-gooder because we know Parker Pine has opined... Before about whether or not men should um, be upstanding and kind of solid with their women folk, or perhaps a little bit more fast and loose. And um, <laughs> right, so we 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 very much know Parker Bryan's opinion on this. Yeah, I was like, oh no, the gender politics. I can see them a coming. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. They're on the horizon. <laughs> All right. So while walking down the corridor en route to the dining car, Elsie passes an open room where she sees a leather case marked. J. Parker Pine, and she immediately remembers the newspaper listing in the Times, Are You Happy? If Not Consult Mr. Parker Pine. Conveniently, she is seated across from him in the dining car, and she immediately asks him if he is the one and the same Parker Pine, and he responds by asking her if she's happy. So that would be a confirmation. Right. And she, you know, pretty frankly tells him that she really mostly is. But before leaving on this trip, she was looking at the notepad in her husband's office, and she's something of a mystery buff. And she thought it would be just a lark to see what had been written on it. What she could see from the imprint was something about, quote unquote, my wife and, quote, just before Venice would be the best time. So now she's pretty concerned because what on earth was he writing about her and her train trip. Pine pulls out the timetable and notes that they'll reach Venice at about half past two the following day. And really, there's nothing to be done before then. Yeah, not the first time, by the way, that we've had someone in a moment of idleness do a little impression of a notepad and and find out some interesting information way back in the Tuesday Night Club, which was the first story within the Miss Marple 13 Problems, there was a little phrase uh, which has become a little legendary on this podcast, dare I remind you, Catherine, of hundreds and thousands, which the maid <laughs> found written on that notepad. <laughs> oh, our, our dear listeners still to this very day like to send us pictures and um, <laughs> notes. Um, so I have seen at this point, you know, dozens of containers of hundreds and thousands from across the Commonwealth. All over the world, really, right? Yeah, Not not just in the UK. I think we've had at least one post from Australia. Australia. Yeah. 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 Uh, We are are now hundreds and thousands experts 
aren't we? We do know that there are hundreds and thousands all over the world. This is not an outdated term. Not at all. Although I um, now have become aware that hundreds and thousands are generally what I would consider to be non-parels or the little round balls versus the little round extra crunchy ball versus the the more the wormy and softer sprinkles. Right, yeah. and I and I might be a rando because I grew up thinking of the little round ones as non-parels and the longer ones as sprinkles. I think I did too, but I probably would have called the little round balls sprinkles as well, but made some sort of caveat that I meant the crunchy circles and not the standard sprinkle, which is certainly the longer. Well, I will also note that a non-prowl is a name for a disc of chocolate that's covered in the tiny round ones. One of my favorite movie candies, actually. Really? Yeah, they're always sold in movie concession stands, at least in the U.S. They don't um, have all that much flavor to them. I was always a junior mids person myself. I mean, I I was an everything person, and I still am. I don't think there's any candy I wouldn't eat at a movie concession stand. But I just like dark chocolate. Raisinets? So if you like dark chocolate, I love them. Like raisin? Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, I love me some raisinets Terrible. sprinkled into a large bucket of popcorn. Oh, perfect. One of my Ugh. one of my very favorites actually. <laughs> anyway, the next day at around that time, that would be 2 p.m., uh, which is when Parker Pine knows that they are going to be passing Venice. He is sitting with Elsie in her room to protect her in case anything happens. With the train running a bit behind schedule, where's Mussolini when you need him? It's a bit after 2 when actually probably he around. He probably actually right there <laughs> running the train schedule, actually, given the year the story was written. Yeah, totally. So it's a bit after 2 when all of a sudden someone starts shouting fire in the hall and everyone rushes out of the rooms where indeed smoke is billowing out of a room farther down the corridor. Elsie and Pine and everyone else are frantically trying to figure out what's going on until Pine realizes, "Mm, wait a second, was this all a ruse and that they should run back to Elsie's compartment. Right. And so Pine does just that. Uh, Elsie's still sort of down the hall. And in her chamber, he finds this Slavic woman who had screamed fire, hysterically getting fresh air by the window. But he is, of course, very suspicious. And he forces her to stay while he grabs Elsie. And he makes Elsie go to her jewel box, which she's had on her person, even in the dining car. But she left it in the room when somebody screamed fire. So she unlocks the jewel case And what's in that jewel case, Kemper? Nothing. Nothing. So they wait until they get to Venice. And in Venice, she telegrams her husband and Pine gets the police onto the train to detain the Slavic woman. But there are no jewels on her. There are no jewels in wherever her compartment may have been. And so they release her. And Elsie and Parker Pine search the compartment too. But there's still no sign of these missing jewels. And Pine notes that he will need to send his own telegram when they get to their next stop, which is Trieste. 
So in Istanbul, this is where Hercule Poirot caught the Orient Express going in the opposite direction. Yeah, so I like to imagine them crossing. I mean, again, it's like around the same time. I mean, this isn't a coincidence, I think, that Christie had the Orient Express on the brain. Right. We're in 1933. So in Istanbul, Edward Jeffries, who is Elsie's husband, greets his wife at the train, and she introduces him to Parker Pine. And Pine says to Elsie, I will meet you in a half an hour at your hotel. And she seems a little hesitant and kind of weirded out by this, but her husband says, you should definitely do this. That's fine. So she agrees. Cut to the hotel. Right. And uh, what does Parker Pine do? He hands her a sturdy cardboard box filled with all of her jewels. What? Yeah. And he tells her that he can't explain how he has them, but here they are and they are all accounted for and they are now back in her hands. Parker Pine does it again, although not really, because in most of the stories we've read of his thus far, he's not really performing any sleight of hand. He's usually just bamboozling people with Correct. stories. So this is actually one of his more impressive feats, I would say. Correct. So Parker Pine goes to a cafe, he orders two coffees, and he waits. And sure enough, Edward Jeffries shows up and asks him how he knew. And Parker Pine tells him about the note that his wife had found doing her little detective work with the impression on the notepad. And Pine tells Jeffries that when they couldn't find the jewels, he realized the only explanation was that they must have been thrown out of the train. But the train was over water at the moment when it was approaching Venice, So there couldn't have been an accomplice waiting beside the track, waiting to catch the jewels. Right. Which which could mean only one thing, that the jewels that were on the train obviously had to be fake because... The jewels jewels were stolen, quote unquote, in order to get rid of the jewels because they were not jewels at all. They were paste copies. Right. The name of the game was just get rid of these fake jewels because as soon as any expert takes a look at them, they'll know that they're not not real and we just need to and, make them disappear. And had they been thrown out anywhere that wasn't above the ocean, there would have been a chance that investigators might have found them and then they would have found them and still realized that they were in fact paste copies. Right. So well, I'm still confused, Catherine. Explain this. Well, uh, So two things. One, we can gather from this that the person who Parker Pine sent the telegram to in Trieste was Edward Jeffries. So that's thing number one. And what Parker Pine has figured out is that Jeffries had turned all of his wife's actual real expensive jewels into paste back in London. And he replaced them in her jewel box. And so she's been carrying around a box of jewels that aren't real. And she was unaware of this, but because Jeffries is like inherently a decent person, what he did not want to do was implicate his staff um, or anybody around them if they were to be found out. And so what he's done is he's arranged for them to be quote unquote stolen in a location and in a way where no one could be implicated in their theft. While, and this is a little bit unclear, he, I guess, either was intending to pawn the originals in Istanbul or file an insurance claim after the theft. 
Right. We came across this originally in The Adventure of the Western Star. Right. Where it was it, it was actually a paste replica that we were dealing with. Uh, Christy has done this before, and I believe she even did it one other time in another story that we covered at some point. I mean, she's 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 written a lot of jewel heist <laughs> adventures, and right. there are only so many tropes <laughs> one one can run through, I think, in that subgenre. So yeah. Why though would an innocent person do this? Because we are getting the sense that Edward Jeffries is not a bad lot whatsoever. No, he seems really, really, really upset. And not just because he's been caught, but because he seems desperate and like he feels tremendous guilt and he doesn't know what to do. Here's the deal. And who boy is it convoluted. <laughs> but while on business in the West Indies, there was a lovely woman who was being beaten and threatened with a gun by her husband. It's horrifying. So he, he being Edward Jeffries, gave this woman refuge in his room overnight. Supposedly innocently. And we are supposed to... We're meant to, to believe be- him. We're meant to believe him. And we've, we've actually come across that in many a Parker Pine story before as well. You know, men who act honorably, even though on the surface their actions seem dishonorable. For as cynical as many of these Parker Pine stories are, we actually really are supposed to believe in the best intentions of people many times, which I do find interesting. So... Mm-hmm. Clearly, we are supposed to believe that this was all above board. And then when Edward Jeffries got engaged to Elsie, that is when the blackmail started, warning him that if he didn't pay, certain parties would go to his fiance's father and blow up their relationship, more or less. And this has continued for ages now. And the last request was simply too much money, given the state of the economy. Ding, 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 1933. Right. (laughs) So his only choice here was to use his wife's jewels, ideally without her finding out, since this whole thing has been going on behind her back, of course. Right. And so Parker Pine tells him, well, you know, he actually believes him entirely and that he will handle the blackmailers. So Jeffries does not have to worry about it anymore. Parker Pine will do Parker Pine magic and take care of the blackmailers. I like to believe that Madeline DeSera gets somehow involved in this. Oh, Madeline DeSera is going to be their worst nightmare. Oh, yeah, I, I think so. I think that we I think we have some blackmailing of the blackmailers about to happen. It's like cue Madeline DeSera sashaying into some seedy den of a place in the West Indies and they're like, are just over. Oh, just <laughs> totally ruined. He's he's Parker Pine's going to ruin these people's lives. But then again, they are un, they're unrepentant blackmailers. So right, right. this is where this story gets. If, if that's a little gonzo, this now at this very end point of the story is where this story gets dicey. Because what right, is it's it? Like so so far so good, right? Yeah, it's like, Parker it, Pine's doing like a, a charming noble job. Yeah, yeah, like a charming sunny Parker Pine story. Except Parker Pine tells. Edward Jeffries that he needs to come clean to his wife about everything except the blackmailing and basically make an explanation about his like rakish bachelor days. Tell his wife that she essentially reformed him and you know he had maybe a more scandalous life before and he just feels all this guilt because he's been such a changed man because of her but this is coming back to haunt him and he just desperately wants her to understand and that He will try to continue to be a good man, but, you know, hopefully this is all in the past and that she will understand. And according to Parker Pine, well, not only will she understand, but she will feel bad herself 
and be overwhelmingly more interested in her husband because she will just be excited that she managed to reform this sort of CAD. And because in a Parker Pine story, the best relationships are built on a foundation of lies. (laughs) Every (laughs) single time. Yep. Yep. It's really so true. And by the way, maybe he shouldn't do away with the blackmailers. It sounds like if the information the blackmailers were going to provide to her and her father could just stand, that sounds like the perfect cover story to me. She'd probably be super excited by that, right? Well, according to Parker Pine, I mean, I would be horrified if I were her, but you know, that's... That's me. It might be a bit much. I think he wants I think he wants him to fabricate a slightly more PG version of roguish behavior than what the blackmailers are claiming he did. Right. But only slightly. (laughs) Only slightly. Yeah. So I mean it's some highly questionable uh marriage advice that Parker Pine's doling out in exchange for him dealing with the blackmailers. Yeah, and we leave Parker Pine in Istanbul and ready to travel to even farther flung locales in his Arabian Nights adventure. I can't wait. Uh, Yeah, let's see what other wrenches he can throw into people's relationships. (laughs) (laughs) Well... That is an end to Have You Got Everything You Want. Join us next week for a very special episode, actually. We are doing another double episode. We did one recently centered on Countess Vera Rosikoff. And we are doing another one next time on a subject no less vaunted, the opera. Indeed we are. We will be covering two short stories that take place within the world of opera slash are centered on opera in terms of the hijinks that ensue in those stories. And those would be The Face of Helen within the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection and Swan Song, the final story within the Listerdale Mystery Collection. So we will be covering both those stories next time. And we should just mention that our next novel is Towards Zero. Which is going to be very intriguing. Very intriguing. I have very little memory of it. So little memory, in fact. And I know this is a shocking confession to make as a co-host of this podcast. I'm not certain I've read it. The only reason that I think that I have is I know what my mother's copy of it looks like, and I read all of them. So, but my, my memory of the plot mechanics is going to be completely refreshed when we read it again. Yeah, and it's a, technically it's a superintendent battle mystery. He does apparently make an appearance, and it's always these non-Poirot, non-Marple, non-Mega standalone novels that are in the most danger of falling through the cracks, I think, even for Agatha Christie completists. So maybe there are a number of you who haven't read it or only read it once a long time ago and aren't totally familiar with it, but I'm excited to be covering it because I think it's fair to say it's, it's a lesser celebrated Christie, but one that many are quite fond of. A lot of people are quite fond of it. So uh, very, very interested to tackle that. Absolutely. And in the meantime, you can always contact us, email us at allaboutthedame@gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha. Our Instagram handle is all about Agatha. And we're on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Robcat. And you can always leave a rating and review for us. It really helps out the podcast and we so appreciate it wherever you're listening to this podcast and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.